Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Your host, Dave, loves to talk about the Walt Disney World Resort. Now please move across your row, filling in all the available space. And keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the podcast at all times. And we ask that there be no eating, drinking, smoking, or flash photography during the podcast. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I've got a guest on today's podcast to talk about something fun, and he's uh, Sam Genoway, and you've heard him on this uh, podcast before. Today, we're going to talk about his book, The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream. And uh, Sam is a bit of a historian, I, I guess you could say, and uh, we're going to talk about the book and uh, some of the history. Sam, uh, how are you doing today? I am doing outstanding. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be on the show. Oh, excellent. You know, I'm glad you could make it on, because um, when you were telling me about this book, I was kind of fascinated by the, uh, by the backstory here, uh, because uh, previously we've talked about Walt and the Promise of Progress City, and I think that was really a nice uh, foray into some of the things that, uh, you know, Walt Disney's vision and some of the things that he was thinking. But this kind of goes back a little bit into more of the history of how Disneyland was conceived in particular. Yes, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I grew up in Southern California, used to visit Disneyland quite a bit as a kid, never went on the rides because our family couldn't afford the rides, or we couldn't afford the food, but you know, there were free rides, so we went on them often. But I, I got a real sense of the place, and, and why it's so special, why it's so why people keep going back again and again, and something I've always wanted to do was a biography of, of Disneyland. Uh, in a sense, um, uh, I was watching a lot of Ken Burns when I was writing this book, and it's kind of like a Ken Burns' story. You know, it takes you from the very, very genesis of why Walt was inspired to do the thing, and, and what were some of the early motivations, and it takes you through the the life of the park. Because if you think about it, right now, it's a, it's a little middle-aged man at this point, <laughs> and so you know. It's trials and tribulations over the many years that's that's really cool so um what you know that that's kind of the background of what what inspired you to, to write the story um you know what did you find out about uh, about walt and you know what what are some of the you know some of the key things that you learned along the way well, you know, this one was a this one was a real effort on on the research, and and I, I really really dug deep to try to find stuff, uh, new stuff that people may not have heard, or try to find the correct context. And I, I think what I kind of learned, one of the things I really learned early on, and, and I started off the book by describing Disneyland as Walt's third child. He had Diane, lovely daughter, wonderful woman, uh, had good fortune to meet her, uh, Sharon, who I never met, uh, and then Disneyland, and he treated Disneyland kind of like a child, uh, and taught it really good values, but it. The inspiration sort of came out of the inspiration that Walt always had, which was desperation. If you really think of his greatest achievements, they usually came right on the heels of some of his greatest disappointments. So, you know, Mickey Mouse came when he lost Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, in the case of Disneyland, I, I think what really was his inspiration was he was sort of disenchanted with the movie studio, with animation in general, and that sort of creative process. Just prior to World War II, he, he'd done a couple of his most amazing films. Uh, Bambi was a success, but Fantasia critically was mixed bag, and commercially it was a mixed bag as well, too. Uh, he had the writer's strike, or the writer's strike, his animator's strike, just prior to World War II. I think that really, really hurt him. 
And it kind of hurt the camaraderie that he felt in animation. And after World War II, because the movie studios, the other movie studios did quite well during World War II, whereas Disney didn't. And the studio was really on the cusp. Right after World War II, they didn't have much going on. Their animated movies, uh, you know, we all think of Mickey Mouse as a star, but Tom and Jerry were a much, much more successful cartoon series than Mickey Mouse was by this time. And I think that Walt was just sort of looking around, at the time for what is the next thing that he wanted to get involved with and then he went back to his childhood fascination with amusement parks and his fascination with his children and taking them to amusement parks and that was really the inspiration for Disneyland and I, I found documentation where in 47, 48 he spent a lot of time just going around to little neighborhood amusement parks in Southern California talking to children, which would lead me to believe that he would have been arrested today. But at the time, he could get away with it. Um, and, and so that was, that was, I think, one of the earliest inspirations was maybe this movie studio thing isn't going to last. And maybe I need to come up with something else to supplement it, to diversify. It takes too long. It's too expensive to do the big feature films. I'm starting to get into live action, but that's not what our studio is known for. Maybe there's something else that's out there. That's a fascinating thought because um, when you look at when you look at Walt and you know kind of how how he came together with uh, some of his ideas and, and some of the things that happened, you're you're absolutely right. I, I, I'm sure um, because of the way that he kind of he evolutionary evolutionarily you know, evolutionary uh, in an evolutionary way thought about the uh, the parks um, and something that he could do was spend some time and you know spend some time with his daughters and whatever. I, I think that's a really interesting notion. And the fact that he stepped away from um, the movie studios, I, that, you know, that's something that I never really considered before. But that's a really fascinating thought because he would have uh, – you know, if you look at the, the big picture, you're right. The, the money was – there wasn't the money there at that point in time, and he wasn't at the top of his game, so it's kind of hard to do. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't winning the Academy Awards. His cartoons weren't the most successful; they were just merely the most expensive. Um, if you wanted a if you were a movie theater and you wanted to show a cartoon that would drag the audience in, you're probably showing a Looney Tunes from Warner Brothers at that time. Also, I think another thing that really was helpful is when he moved to his house in Holmby Hills, um, the house on Carrollwood Drive. I think that was a big difference, too, because prior to that, he really was a workaholic and spent a lot of time at the studio. His office basically was an apartment. It had a bed. It had a small kitchenette and all that sort of stuff. And then when he got his new house in Holmby Hills and he was building his backyard railroad and got really into that, he spent a lot more time at home than he was at the studio, and he had a lot of chance to sort of think of things uh, a little bit a little bit differently. He really liked going to amusement parks. I think the kids liked it as well. But one person who really didn't like going to amusement parks was Lily and his wife. She thought that they were very dirty. Now, she liked Tivoli, but she didn't really like the traditional amusement park. And in many respects, I've kind of learned through Walt's life that a lot of the times he did something is because it was something his family would enjoy. So Disneyland was the clean amusement park that he really wanted his wife to go. When he started working on a ski resort in the Sierra Nevada mountains called Mineral King. It's because his wife loved the mountains, but she wasn't necessarily enamored with ski resorts, so he's going to try to create a ski resort that would be something his wife would really like to go to. So uh, his motivation, I think, in a lot of cases was, was very personal, but he was the genius that knew that, well, if he liked it, there's probably enough other people out there that would like it as well mm -hmm. that he could probably make some money off of it as well. Yeah, and that's that's the finest point I think is just the fact that you know, he realized that other people were going to think like him. Uh, yeah, they had he had some a very clever idea. Hey, let's create something that's clean and fun and family oriented, and we can do do some good things there. 
and uh, we'll get people to come in, and yeah, we can make a little money. Though I, I get the impression money was never his main driving factor. It was more about uh, entertaining himself or his family. Yeah, he was he was savvy enough to know that he needed to make money so he could keep playing. So he wasn't a, he wasn't a, um, a as a businessman. He was fairly sophisticated. In fact, in the development process, um, very early on. Um, he had Harrison Buzz Price, who worked for didn't work for him directly. He was a consultant that worked for him and started the Economic Research Associates, uh, which was the company that found a location for uh, actually no Stanford Research Institute at the time, but uh, was the uh, the people who found the location for Disneyland and Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland. And one of the things that Walt would do is he would think of an idea. He'd think that there might be some merit. He would hire Buzz Price to go ahead and do a quick back-of-the-envelope study of the idea to see if there was any money to be made, if it was something that could be feasible. Uh, Walt would take his advice, and then if he thought that there was some merit, he would continue to develop it, invest more of his own money to try to develop the idea a bit further. He would hire Buzz to come back and do another study just to see if you know the thing had any more merit. And if it really looked like there was something that was there, then... Walt would take the idea to his brother Roy, and Roy would traditionally hire Buzz to do a financial study for him. And Buzz was smart enough never to play the brothers off each other. Just give them the facts. They'll make whatever decision they want to make. And then if it happened to pass muster there, then it would probably get put in and they would invest the money into the park. So, yeah, you're right. He he didn't want to make money because he wanted to have – I guess he did want to make money so he could have the most toys. I guess we really could say that of Walt, couldn't we? Yeah, that's probably fair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but but there were toys he liked to share. And I, I have a quote in the new book, uh, the the Disneyland story, about something that his daughter had recognized that he he liked buying things so he could share things. So he didn't just buy a little train for his backyard in Holmby Hills. He bought a train in the backyard so he could take the neighborhood kids for a ride and have friends over and all that kind of stuff. And Disneyland was the same thing. He he really he'd drive around on the fire truck, you know. He'd have meals out in the park. He liked to share his toys. <laughs> so I maybe hadn't really thought of it that way before. But yeah, Walt did like to make money so he could buy toys, but he just liked to share them. It wasn't about hoarding. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And by the way, for the listeners out there who aren't aware of the um, of the Carolwood Pacific Railroad that he ran through his backyard, that was one of those fascinating things that he did uh, where he had a, a railroad that ran through the entire property, the entire backyard, and you could actually ride in it. Um, he would bring guests over and have them actually sit in the cars and ride it. It was not a huge thing. It was a... I don't know about a uh, eight scale or sixteen scale yeah, or something. When they when they scale, uh, steam locomotive could pull uh, uh, easily pull a ton. He had the track laid out in such a way where you could literally go a mile and never cross over the same piece of track again if you got the switches all correct. It had a trellis. It had a tunnel, <laughs> and you know not just a tunnel. He, he was going to build the. I know mean, this is off the Disneyland story, but. Holmby Hills, his house is critical to the whole Disneyland story. Um, to show you how crazy the guy was, he, he wanted to have the train go around the front of the house, but his wife wouldn't let him do it because <laughs> she wanted to put a rose garden right there. So he made a deal with her and the children to build a tunnel underneath the rose garden, had his studio lawyer drop a contract between the family and the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad to have the rights to dig a tunnel underneath and then not just build a tunnel underneath. The tunnel had a little jog in it and the guy who was building it for him said, well, this is going to cost twice as much to put this little jog in it. You know, you couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel sort of thing. And Walt said, well, I know that. If you don't want to build it, I'll just find somebody else who will build it and decided to build it that way. So it's that kind of, that was the beginning of the little strange details that we find through Throughout the Disney parks, those layers that we keep on 
unraveling over time. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we keep going back to the, to the park so often, because there's always something else you just didn't see before, no matter how many times you went. And it started really in his backyard. Yeah, you know, that, that's the fantastic and fascinating point about the whole thing is it actually does come down to him having the, those points in time where he, uh, he had these visions and things that, you know, were just so different and so unique. That jog, that's a great example of the kinds of things he thought of that no one else would ever think of. Right? You know, and there was a couple of other examples that I, I had learned in the research of the book that, that were of the same sort of quality. Quality always wills out. One was the stagecoach, and, and Frontierland used to have the big painted desert originally, and there were three ways of tra- traversing the same terrain. Um, you could take a pack mule, and those lasted until like the 70s. You could take a Conestoga wagon, which, according to Imagineer Bill Martin, was the dumbest ride that Disney had ever done because you were stuffed inside of a Conestoga wagon. You couldn't look at anything, you know, it was- you're looking at people on the other side of the bench in the wagon, and they had stagecoaches, but they weren't just regular stagecoaches. They were miniature stagecoaches. They were scale model ones pulled by miniature horses. Uh, now, unfortunately, people are not miniaturized, so they tended to be kind of top-heavy, and they fell over a lot, which is one of the reasons they got rid of them fairly soon. But John Hench, Imagineer, who had been there since, was there 95 years. He lived to be 95. They were working on the stagecoaches, and they were doing all of the leather straps exactly the way you would do the leather straps. And John Hench said, you know, there's other ways we could do this and not be as expensive. And Walt said, no, you know what? People will notice. People will notice these things. We, we must have them to be the way that they are. Another example was the storybook land canal boats. And, and Harriet Burns was working on a stained glass window for the church in the Alice in Wonderland area that had 360 pieces in this little stained glass window. And the thing was, the stained glass window was going to be on the back side where no one would ever see it. So they could have done it in a fairly cheap sort of way, you know, like sell or paint or something like that. But, but Walt insisted on having the glass be real stained glass and all the latches on the buildings really being made out of brass or the appropriate material. And that really said something to the Imagineers that that we have to build in these kind of details. That's what makes us special. And these are just a couple of examples of things where you might not notice. But, you know, today when we don't see that kind of quality, we notice them. And so uh, just genius that way. I, I would agree with you. Uh, there's, it, it's fascinating to you. are absolutely right. Every time I go back to the parks, I, I have that same vision. Even though I spend more of my time in Walt Disney World, I still notice that. Um, when I walk in somewhere, I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. And how did I never see that before? How did I never observe that? Yeah, and, and that's that's. I think that's the easiest way of explaining why we keep going back to the parks. It's that layer. It's that detail. That is the diff- that, that has been the Disney difference uh, since Walt designed the things, and I, I hope that they keep it up. Oh, me too. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, as we look at the story of, of uh, Disneyland, you know that we talked a little bit about the uh, why he did what he did and how he got to the point of building some of the things that he did and making some of the key decisions. How does that influence us going forward? Um, you know, not just us, but, you know, other people who look at the Disney parks and people who uh, build around that, because clearly that had some vision into the future and um, other generations that had no contact with Walt obviously have some uh, some influence with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I start off the book by really talking about uh, about 
and this is his third child. Because one of the frustrations that Walt Disney had with his theatrical releases, the movies, the live movies, the animation and stuff, is when it's done, it's done. When it's shipped off to Technicolor and the prints are made and, you know, they're being distributed, you can't go back. You can't change it. I mean, I guess nowadays we directors can do that. But back then, you made the movie that you made, and when it was done, it was done, and you put it in the can, and you were finished. And he was always frustrated that he couldn't constantly tweak because he was always learning something new. He always gained another piece of knowledge. And so Disneyland was that outlet where he could put something in, and if it worked, that was great. And if it didn't work, he could easily tear the thing out. You know, there's a lot of rides that were like that. Uh, one of the famous ones was the Phantom Boats that were these really kind of funny-looking fiberglass boats with bat wings on the back, and it had one driver, and you could stick three people in the boat, and it went around a little lake that had really nothing to look at other than weeds on the bank, and they always broke down didn't last very long. Those went away. He tried to do a circus uh, in the first year, and the circus was a miserable failure because people would rather just come to Disneyland. The circus went away, never to come back again. So he could experiment with things. He would move trees around or plantings around. The, the belt of the park is the train tracks, and when he came up with a really good idea, he would let out the belt, and the train tracks would seem to get longer, especially in Frontierland on the west side of the park. Uh, he's moved that about 75, 80 yards to accommodate new attractions and stuff like that. So the, he taught the park really good values, but, you know, he died when the park was only 11 years old. And one of the things that really fascinated me to me, fascinating to me was that it was such a personal place. Really, Disneyland should have passed when Walt passed. You know, it, 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 it had too much of him involved in it, but he taught the kids the right values. And every time they stuck to the values, it succeeded. And when they haven't, it doesn't do as well. That's an interesting point, and I, you know, I know we've talked about that in the past. That uh, you know, it's it's really about keeping true to the vision and making sure that everything kind of stays the, you know, stays in the right in the right vein. I mean, there's some some excellent decisions and some very good things that happen, and we like looking at the layers. But there are moments when you look at the parks today and you kind of go, "Wow, they made some decisions that maybe Walt wouldn't have made, or maybe aren't in the best interest of the company, or you know, things of that nature." And yeah, that's the kind of the, the trappings that happen when it becomes a large company that becomes about money as opposed to, you know, about the vision of I want to have a place where I can go and entertain and have fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to give you an example of, of, of that was the Second Gate, Disney's California Adventure. The book does get into some of the other expansion projects that were related to Disneyland. Uh, Port Disney, which was going to be a big resort in Long Beach. Uh, with the Disney Sea as its theme park, uh, the Westcott, which was going to be basically a West Coast version of, of Epcot, which was going to be a big expansion project. Disney California Adventure, which from the get-go was designed to be everything that Disneyland wasn't and to sort of be the bratty adolescent to Disney that Disneyland that didn't listen to all the right rules. And... Since it didn't listen to all the right rules, they had to spend $1.2 billion to get it to be successful again. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's, that's a scary amount of money. Um, it is. So in 1960, Walt Disney was fascinated by the Los Angeles County Arbor. And they ended up having a show about Sunset Magazine. At really nice backyards that people could have in their homes in Southern California. <laughs> and because of that, the... the the, the attendance at the Arboretum went up twice, doubled that one year. 
Walt, seeing a good idea, thought, well, I'm going to do the same thing. So he had a study done, and it was a suggestion actually by a guy named Ed Edinger, who was his marketing director at the time. And what Walt did was he was going to build in the parking lot of Disneyland a subdivision of like 12 homes that represented different geographic areas of California along the beach, in the mountains, that sort of thing. And each of the houses was going to be fully immersive with appropriate weather and state-of-the-art furnishings design and stuff like that and it was going to be a rotating show and it was going to be constantly updated and it was going to be designed for local southern californians to come and live california in this parking lot didn't happen because he got really busy with the uh, world's fair but he was looking at building a theme park sort of a theme park in the parking lot as early as 1960 and very very few people know that i don't think the disney company really talks much about it Maybe they will now that California Adventure is a big success. That's interesting. I had never heard that story before. Um, kind of in, in a way, first thing I thought of when you said, you know, keeping it up to date and always, always encouraging uh, change there made me think of Tomorrowland right away because that was the original intent for Tomorrowland too was to always make it, you know, evolve in some way. Yeah, exactly. And in, in the case of Tomorrowland, um, uh, the fascinating things that I had learned, they didn't even they by by like October November of 1954, they decided to shelve Tomorrowland. They weren't even going to build it. It was going to come much later. Uh, they ended up showing the rocket to the moon ride to TWA. TWA decided to go ahead and fund it. That got Walt more interested, and then they didn't start construction until maybe like three or four months before the park actually opened. One of the reasons that the Monsanto House of the Future was put in such a wonderful. <coughs> location right in front of Tomorrowland, right out there on the hub, was that was really the first time that Walt was able to do what he really wanted with Tomorrowland, which was to showcase American technology so that people can get inspired about the future. And that house was very, very important to him because that was the first, you know, real example of where he really wanted that part of the park to go to. Uh, and and he, was, he, was, he was awestruck by American technology. If you really think about Walt Disney... Although he's extraordinarily creative, he was creative using technology. He, he figured out how to use sound before other people in uh, animation. Color, the use of color at a time when most of the movie studios in Hollywood didn't even really want to do color movies because they didn't think it added to the story. And Walt knew that color would really make it happen. That's why he cut the deal with Technicolor. Right. Um, stereo sound with uh, Fantasia. He was always sort of saved by technology, and he was a big fan of technology and thought the technology could solve any kind of a problem. And so Tomorrowland really was going to be that showcase. By the time he got to the 1967 Tomorrowland, to me the best Tomorrowland ever, the world on the move. Um, that really was a test bed for his city he was going to build in Florida with Epcot. The People Mover was designed to be a test machine, and if it succeeded at Disneyland, he knew it was going to work in Florida. The way it was laid out and everything was all built around the same idea, too. Really interesting. You know, when you stop so, 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 so Tomorrowland was going to be a, a real big deal for him, and it was a real point towards the future. And that's amazing, you know, when you when you stop and think about it, just how far into the future he was he was thinking already, um, because he had already had this sort of vision for a you know the prototype city, and he was sort of planning for that in some way back in the 1950s. That's that's it's amazing to me, you know, just how forward thinking he was, and just how, how far ahead of the game he he was, considering you know what time he was living in. 
Yeah, and there's there's, there's like little funny stories that uh, about Tomorrowland. One of them that really kind of caught my attention was that in early marketing materials, they made a big deal about how close it was to walk from attraction to attraction, that he was saving you steps, and all the front doors of the attractions were within a very, very brief walk. You know, you don't, you don't think about that today, but, you know, his idea is that in the 67 Tomorrowland, the first thing you do is you would go in to the people mover, and that was going to take you up into the sky and show you a pre Preview, just like the train did around the park. It's going to give you a preview of all the attractions and shops in Tomorrowland. And then you could do, once you got off the people mover, it was a very brief walk to go to all the front doors. And they even counted the steps. So there's other fascinating uh, practical applications of design that, that still last today. Like, uh, let's, let's take, for example, uh, New Orleans Square. You know, we all love it because it's got Pirates of the Caribbean and the Blue Bayou and for those who've been lucky enough to go up to Club 33, Club 33 and stuff. But going through the research, trying to figure out why did they build New Orleans Square, come to the conclusion that, first of all, Walt loved New Orleans. It was like his favorite American city. Lillian loved it. She loved the antique shopping. But once again, New Orleans was a very dirty place. And Walt wanted to create a version of New Orleans that had everything you loved about it but wasn't as dirty <laughs> because he didn't like that. So that was a primary motivation. And he wanted to do a pirate's walkthrough, something he'd been interested in a long time. But going through the planning materials, going through the documentation that I saw, I have come to the conclusion that the, one of the major reasons why New Orleans Square exists is it was to hide the Disneyland Hotel Tower. <laughs> At the time, Jack Rather had proposed to Walt that he wanted to build a tall tower for the Disneyland Hotel. And Walt was fine with that because Jack was his friend and it made sense for the resort area. Sure. But he didn't want it to be seen inside of the park. And so what he did is they designed New Orleans Square specifically so that you cannot see the Disneyland Hotel Tower. Mm. And that is the reason why New Orleans Square exists. Because during that time, there was a lot of fights, and I get into that in the book, about heights and height limits around Disneyland. You know, this was a big deal. Walt built this fantasy land for himself, but in the end, he specifically did not want people who had property around him to exercise their uh, proper building rights because it would interfere with him. And so there is some little politics that's there that I get into in the book that I found quite fascinating. And that is fascinating because that was one of the things that came out of you know the whole story of Disney World and what he got out of it was this, this great size and the amount of land he had so he could separate it out from the rest of the world. Um, yeah. So, you know, you didn't have that same problem uh, that you had in Disneyland where he had all this, you know, this property that was being built up around him. And you didn't have that necessarily that vision of, you know, I'm, I'm someplace different until you got on the property anyway. Yeah, he was very frustrated about that. Now, he almost bought land in La Mirada, and that would have had enough acreage. And I'd always wanted to speculate that if he would have bought the land in La Mirada as opposed to the land in Anaheim, that he probably never would have built Walt Disney World because he would have never had this encroachment problem. And the story of this, I won't get in deeply at all on the story about how they bought the property. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have heard the old story now that, that they hired this company, and this company did this big mathematical study, and then they pinpointed the exact location in Anaheim of where Disneyland should be, and that's going to be really close to where the population of Southern California was going to be 20 years hence. And a lot of that's true, but not all of that's true. <laughs> and in the book, I go into what is really true, and the fact of the matter is that for the longest time, Disneyland was not going to be in Anaheim. 
It was going to be somewhere else, and it just happened to be happenstance at the very end that some guy walked in and had the right lunch with the right guy, and all of a sudden Disneyland ended up being in Anaheim in the exact location. And not even in the exact location. They even had to change the location at the last minute. So fascinating story. It it is a fascinating story. And I I would even take that further that as Disney evolved and wanted to build another property, whether it was Disney World or whatever it might have been, uh, there were several properties that they looked around, uh, at around the country. And then even after they selected Dis- the site for Disney World in Orlando, uh, they had decided that there were other properties that they were interested in, other things that he wanted to do. I mean, it's it just amazing to me how many different things he was dabbling in uh, throughout the toward the end of his life. And even the yeah. company kind of went a little further, continuing some of the thoughts that he had. And that's just amazing to me because that, that's the backstory that really makes this all very interesting, that he really understood things at a, at a deeper level than most people would give him credit for or understand, really. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And then, and then, of course, the story does continue after Walt's death. I mean, he was just there for the first 11 years. And we go through the whole cycle of things. The people who came after him, Card Walker, Ron Miller, how they uh, led the park, Jack Lindquist and those folks, um, trying to do what would Walt do. And then Eisner coming on board with Frank Wells and transforming the resort into something completely different. Something very completely different, and the the struggles in the 90s uh, uh, and the early 2000s when the maintenance of the park wasn't quite what it should have been, Mm -hmm. and how they kind of rectify that, and a lot of expansion talk. Now, I I don't get into detail about uh, Disney California Adventure per se, but I do talk a lot about the various attempts for expansion. Um, uh, There was 40 acres that was a strawberry field across the street from the park for a long time was looking like it was going to be something. The struggles of buying this one strawberry field just down Harbor Boulevard, where the family that owned it just absolutely hated Disney, even to the point of where the two brothers on the farm, one of them killed himself on the property because of the pressure from Disney trying to buy the property, and how that took forever for them to finally get that property, and today it's a parking lot. It's an overflow parking lot uh, for for Disney and is the potential site for a third uh, third theme park. And the speculation about what would have taken place in Long Beach, I had the preliminary master plan of what they proposed to build in Long Beach as opposed to California Adventure. So it's it's an ever-evolving story. I I think it kind of comes down to probably one of my biggest observations, which is when you walk through Disneyland today and you walk through that portion of Anaheim today, very – very little of what you see was there almost 60 years ago. Hmm. Almost everything has changed in some way or another, yet we hold such nostalgia for the park as if nothing has ever changed. And it is just fascinating how you can be both, how you can be a place of such great nostalgia, yet nothing is the same as it was (laughs) when you were there. That, that is amazing. That? How did they do that? I just never can figure that one out. I, I don't know how you straddle both fences like that. <laughs> so so that's that's one of my other real fascinations about that particular park. Yeah, and I, I would extend that again. Walt Disney World is the same kind of a thing. It's not the same park it was when it opened. It's not even close to the same concept it was 20 years ago. Uh, but things have, things have evolved, and people still have that fascination with it and still see it kind of both ways. It's, it's yeah. amazing. 
I and, and I and maybe a little maybe a little less as often as I've gone to Walt Disney World, maybe a little less at the Magic Kingdom, but Epcot. I'm starting to sense that Epcot is now getting that same sort of um, reaction that there was a very different Epcot throughout that doesn't exist at all anymore, mm-hmm. and and with maybe the exception of the Living with the Land boat ride, and even then that's not quite the same now either, either is it? No. no. Uh, but but that's another place where there was a nostalgia of what it was uh, that's becoming very very palatable. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I you know I heard a rumor the other day about potentially journey into your imagination changing again and you know being closed for some period of time. And you know people were like, "Well, how could you close that? You know, it's it, it's it's better than it than it was recently, but it's not as good as it was. Maybe they'll put it back." And I was just like, "Wow, uh, okay." <laughs> you, you just don't expect that sort of reaction. It's amazing. Or maybe I should expect that sort of reaction. I don't know. Well, you know, like like, like the one Ep- one Epcot ride that I never rode because I love Carousel of Progress. I never went on Horizons, mm. and 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 everyone I've ever talked to is like, oh, it's it's Carousel of Progress Part Two, and you know, it's like, oh, I wish I could go on that. And I've seen videos, right. but I know that that's one of those rides that you know, if you've seen the video, it just doesn't doesn't quite match up to it. So no. that's that's one of the great lost lot rides. Of course, I can bug um, younger people than me with the Adventures Through Inner Space <laughs> with Monsanto, but there is a guy who did that incredible. Um, DVD that is the digital reproduction of the ride, which is oddly quite accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that. It's, it's really pretty neat. I, I've never seen the, the actual ride, but um, or not that I remember anyway, but I've seen the, the DVD and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Well, you know, as, as a little kid, there was only a certain amount of free rides at Disneyland. <laughs> that happened to be one of them, so I used to go on that one a lot. It was, it was the most surreal ride um, a surreal theme park ride next to the E.T. Adventure over at Universal. <laughs> <laughs> so as a reminder, uh, Sam's book is The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream. And uh, it's available um, <clears throat> for pre-order right now on Amazon. Uh, and uh, you can you can pick it up there. Um, and I will, uh, I'll put a link to my sh- in my show notes page to it. And I understand, Sam, you're going to be doing more uh, book signings along the way. I am. I'll be at, uh, if anybody's coming out to the D23 Expo, I'll be hanging out either at the Mice Chat booth or the Disney Anna uh, Club booth. So please come on by and stop by and say hello. I'll have copies of the current book, Walt and the Promise of Progress City, with me as well. I'll be selling a few copies of that. Awesome. So that's cool. So yeah, do check that out if you're, uh, if you're out there for uh, D23. But uh, yeah, the book, the book sounds really great. Um, you know, I look forward to reading it as soon as it, uh, as soon as it comes out. Uh, I want to check it out and... Uh, See what see what's in it because you know those backstories and Walt Disney's history really fascinates me as well. That's uh, why I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about it again because I'm just I think the story is so compelling and the man was just so interesting. I, I'm just amazed. It, it, was a, it was a terrific project, and, and, I, and I have to thank a lot of people that helped me out with it, but especially Jeff Curdy, who wrote the foreword to the book. Because if you're going to write a Disney history book, Disneyland history book, you really can't find a better ally than the guy who wrote the best of the Disneyland history books. And so I, I'm very fortunate to have him. Um, uh, and since this book, I've had a chance to talk with a lot of great folks, Bob Kerr, Rolly Crump, Marty Scalar, uh, Tony Baxter, many of the Imagineers who helped put the parks together and get some of their insights. And those are included in the book as well. That's cool. That, that, I think that's the other piece that makes the you know stories like this compelling because it's, it's told in somewhat of a firsthand way from some of these guys who actually knew Walt and worked with him. Um, and that just makes it that much more interesting. Very good. Well, once again, thank you very much for having me on again. Oh, you're absolutely welcome, and you're welcome anytime on my podcast, Sam. (laughs) Excellent. Very good. All right. Well, remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. 
Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app. Show number 147.